In 82 AD, Emperor Domitian built the Ark of Titus. It was to commemorate and celebrate the military victories around the Roman Empire, especially the siege of Jerusalem. In fact, you can see on the Ark some of the clearest depictions we have today of the looting of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. The Emperor of Rome had overthrown the God of the Jewish people, or so he thought. What emperor didn't realize is that the Jewish God of the temple in Israel had moved out a few years earlier. Already all around the Roman Empire, there were small bands of people, Jews, Gentiles, men and women, children, Roman soldiers, slaves and merchants, who were following the teaching of a Jewish rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth. And 300 years later, Christianity would become the religion of the empire. 300 years later, after the building of this monument to the glory of Rome, the tables would completely turn. The religion that the empire tried to extinguish would be embraced. Now, if you're standing in the year 82 AD, and you are the emperor, and you're told that 300 years from now, the glory of Rome would be overshadowed by the glory of the Jewish God, that all of the sudden the pagan temples would be replaced with the worship of the God you thought you defeated. That idea would be just illogical and impossible. But it happened. And in fact, you can go today to the Colosseum, which is one of the greatest Monuments to the glory of Rome. And as you look at the emperor's box in the Colosseum where the emperor stood in their glory and in their power and in their majesty, there's a Christian cross that stands right in front of it. What was once the symbol of Roman brutality and power is now the symbol of God's grace. How did the inconceivable and the impossible happen? How is that that 300 years later, the religion that the empire tried to extinguish ended up embraced? If you have your Bibles, turn over to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to get there in just a moment, but before we do, I want to take us back a little bit further to something that Jesus said to his followers Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now in the original Greek language, he uses a word that I want to introduce to you and that's going to be the title of our lesson today. He says, I will build my ecclesia and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. The word, the word ecclesia means assembly. A gathering, a group of people who are committed to one another and committed to a specific mission. Ecclesia is a movement. It was used to refer to a political movement. And Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, an assembly, a movement, and the gates of hell will not conquer it. They will not overcome it. Nothing will stop it. The ecclesia that Jesus imagined was a group of people who were committed to one another, who, who, who were gripped by the message of Jesus, who were galvanized to the idea of the resurrection, and against all odds spread across the Roman Empire. I will build my ecclesia. 
Over the past few weeks, we've talked about this idea of being together. That's our theme uh, is, is being together, is together. We've talked about being better together in marriage and friendships and with Jesus, walking in humility and loving people who are different than us. And what I want to do this weekend is talk about what it means to be together as a movement. The people, the gathering, the assembly, the ecclesia, us as a church, how Jesus imagined and envisioned us, and, and what happened that this ecclesia, this movement, swept across an empire. So, what I want to do is we want to look at the earliest descriptions of the church in Acts chapter 2. To bring you up to speed on what's going on in Acts chapter 2, Jesus has just ascended back into heaven. He told his followers, go to Jerusalem and wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They went, they prayed, Pentecost came ten days later. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the people and they see 3,000 people saved and get baptized in one day. I know as a church, we read Acts 2 a lot and, and teach it uh, so many times. But recently I read it and, and I felt God revealed to me something new in the passages that I've, I've never realized before, that I've never seen before. And I want to share it with you guys today. So in verse 42, it starts and says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship and to sharing in meals and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miracles, miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place, shared everything they have. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while... Praising God, enjoying the goodwill of all the people, each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. You know, when I read this, I, I find there are three big realities that the church and Acts were living in. One is that the Holy Spirit was moving among them. People were getting healed. Miracles were taking place. People were speaking in other tongues. This was normal, everyday experience for the church. The supernatural was natural part of their lives. The second thing we find is that no one was in need. They were all together. They had everything in common. They sold possessions and property to give to those who were in need. In fact, what caught the attention of the Roman Empire was not the early church's doctrine, not its moral code, but the way it took care of people. Emperor Julian II said that it is a scandal that the Galatians cared not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. He couldn't stand the notion that anyone would be considered more good, more benevolent, more noble than the Roman Empire. And here was a church taking care of not only their own people, but of those in the community. Now when I think about the IE, this is one of the things that I'm actually really proud of us for. I mean, when we look at the way that we're involved in mission and, and the causes that we're part of and, and our credible hope chapter, I feel like we're doing a good job here. But here's where I've got to check myself every now and then. Sometimes 
I personally can assume that I'm acting generously, that I'm, I'm acting hospitable, or I'm on mission, I'm serving, because I'm connected to people who are. I can think of so many people in our congregation that serve the poor, uh, that, that, go hope, that go on hope brigades. And I think of Flores's, the Lamoas, uh, Bobby, and, and, and where I want to push us just a little bit this weekend is not to give ourselves a pat on the back simply because we're close to people who are generous and hospitable and serving. The text doesn't say that they, are, they all gathered together and, and, and gave everything in common. And 10% of them went on mission. 20% of them uh, percent served on ministry team. 30% of them gave financially. It says all. They were all in together. And then finally it says that they grew in number. On the particular day of Pentecost, they grew by 3,000. Other places in Acts says they grew by 5,000 people multiplied. Many were added to the church. This was a group of people that they realized they did not exist for themselves. They existed for those who were not yet part of their group. They were called to be a movement that was growing. They realized they were part of something bigger than themselves. I look at all these three things and and I, I ask myself, am I spirit-filled? Is the supernatural natural in my life? Am I, am I a person that is a contributor and not just a consumer? And I look at the church and I ask, are we growing? Are we wanting to grow? Are we spirit-filled people? Is the, nat- is the unnatural, the supernatural part and natural in our lives? You know, people are, are, are worried. People are scared. People are trying to secure finances because they're scared of the future. And what the first century understood is that Ecclesia, together with God, we have the answers to people's hurts. And so what I want to do today is ask the question, what were they doing? Now, I don't want to approach this as a formula or a prescription or uh, if, if we do this, then this will happen. But there are four things that we find the church was committed to or devoted to. Acts 2 says that they were devoted to the apostles' teachings. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to sharing meals. And they were devoted to prayer. And they did this, did these things, ecclesia, together. And honestly, as I was studying each one separately, um, I realized each one could, could be its own sermon. But what I'm going to do today, I want to look at two that I feel we need right now in this day and age. The first thing they were devoted to was the apostles' teachings. Now, keep in mind, at this point, there is no New Testament. Being devoted to the apostles' teachings did not mean they were sitting in a, in a circle doing a Bible study on Ephesians. And nothing wrong with Ephesians. Uh, it's, that, it's actually a good thing that we study Ephesians. It's the good thing that we're part of this uh, church's history, this side of history in the church. But they didn't have that. They had the Old Testament, which they already knew. It, it, they already studied. But what they did have is the experience of the apostles. Those who had been with Jesus for three years, they were devoted and clinging to and hungry for what these guys had to say. What they saw 
uh, Jesus do? What they had heard him teach? Uh, what they heard him uh, command? They were hungry for the teachings of Jesus. They were studying. Uh, they were not studying a book in the Bible. They were fixated on Jesus. And I asked myself, what was so different about his teachings? What was so different about Jesus' teaching? Because they already knew the Old Testament. And so why did it create, what, why did Jesus' teaching create a new movement? And 3,000, 5,000 people got baptized in one, one day. What was so unique about Jesus' teaching? You know, his teaching was so different that it created a paradigm shift in the culture. And at the center of it was grace. The book, the book of John starts off uh, describing Jesus' work by saying, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses gave the law, but Jesus came and balanced, balanced it out with grace and truth. The law was heavy and burdensome. The law was truth and, the truth, and the truth was there. We're all sinners and not good enough to be with God. But Jesus came and lifted that burden by giving us grace. And what Jesus taught was, love your neighbors as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You are the light of the world. Take up your cross and follow me. Love your enemy. Turn your cheek to those who have slapped you once. If you want to be first, you have to be last. People weren't devoted to what the apostles had to say for themselves. They were, they were devoted to Jesus' teaching and what they saw Jesus teach. You know, I imagine Peter just... Uh, you know, meeting in an underground church and it's dark and there's no light and he's just holding a candle and going, yeah, and then Jesus walked closer to him and touched the leper and everyone goes, <gasps> gasp, and like, can't believe it, what, no way, and, and maybe like a teenager in the back doing a TikTok dance or something, I don't know what they were doing, but I just imagine uh, the apostles uh, just sitting and sharing about how Jesus loved people. How he's given us grace. How he died on the cross for us. But not only that, he resurrected, giving us a chance to be with him. Now the teenagers, I know what they were doing. They were sleeping in the back and they fell off the window. And, and you know, that, that's what they were doing. They didn't have TikToks back in the day. But see, grace is the gospel that cut the Jews' heart in Acts 2. They, they, they heard that and, and they asked, you mean to tell me that the Messiah who we've been waiting for, who we thought would come in a chariot and defeat the Romans, came down as a, a what? A servant? He died for me? Even when I'm a, I'm a sinner, Jesus died for me so I can have a chance to be with him in heaven? It's called grace? And that was so unique. It was so different. In the era of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the traditions that came from the law, all the political hostility between the Romans and the Zealots, Jesus, through, grace, through love, gave us grace. Is that not what we need right now? Is that not what people in our communities need? Aren't you tired of the demonization and attacks we see every day? When God gave us the ability to be together in grace, when through His love gave us 
grace. You see, grace is what motivated the New Testament church. And when I really start to think that way, when, when I start read the Bible in the lens of grace, I start read the Bible differently. Because you see, a lot of times uh, we read scriptures and we think uh, they, they are prescriptions for us and how to live. Uh, now, some scriptures are, but a lot of times what we do is we read a passage or we get told something and, and take that as a prescription for our lives and, and never ask, where did it come from? What is the heart behind it? And so as a result, we can end up doing things out of duty and religiosity. But the better way to read scripture is to ask, how has grace moved this person? How has the gospel of love encouraged, motivated, and compelled Paul, Peter, and the disciples in this passage? And then ask yourself, how has grace moved me today? Am I moved by grace? Or am I moved by other things? Man, that's a different way of being a Christian. That's a different way of reading your Bible. When you put on the lens of grace and read the Bible, Christianity no longer becomes a duty or we do things out of religiosity, but out of grace God gave us. We are compelled by His love and so we love one another because He loved us first. Secondly, it says that they were committed to fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship and to the community. Now I I think to understand this one, and to understand the magnitude of it, to grasp the, the kind of scandal of it, we've got to go back to something that Jesus taught in the book of Mark, and I'll read through it very quickly. In Mark chapter 3, verse 31... Uh, We read this, Then Jesus' mother and brother arrived standing outside. They sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and and they told him, "Uh, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus replied, Who are my mothers and brothers? Then he looked at those in a circle around him and said, Here are my mothers and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my mother. And I think it's, it's so hard for us to find how shocking and scandalous this is. Uh, because we, when we read it, we, we tend to read it as, Oh, Jesus is just you know, giving us a nice metaphor and we're all a spiritual family. But could you imagine for just one m- moment being Mary? And, 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 and just thinking how Mary was standing there and probably thinking, I had to put my life and my reputation on the line to give birth to this guy. And he's saying, my mother and my brother and my sister are sitting around this, this circle. I, I, I gave my reputation up. I almost lost my life for this guy. But you see, in the Old Testament, having a large family was a sign of God's blessing. And Jesus here just flips it on its head. He redefines family. He says, no, no, no. You don't just have a biological family. You have a spiritual family. And the spiritual family is is the one that I am most focused on building. He makes the claim that anyone that is his follower is family. Now, 
I wonder if sometimes in our church we flip this backwards. I know a lot of times in, in church and in the teachings and in the programs that we have, it almost as though each ministry is its own family. You have the campus family, you have the teen family, you have the merits family, and, and these are important and beneficial uh, to have, but to an extent. But because what this creates, in a lot of cases, it leaves a bit of a hole in every ministry. And it makes it feel incomplete. And what ends up happening to a lot of disciples in some ministries, they start feeling as though marriage or dating or a campus ministry or singles ministry or marriage ministry is the ultimate goal. When in fact God made His spiritual family complete. And I believe we need to rediscover something here about family. Now, I'm personally eternally grateful for my biological family. I'm grateful for my family's legacy and the heritage and, and teaching that paved the way for me. Um, the shoulders I get to stand on. I'm eternally grateful for my marriage. My marriage brings me joy. It shapes my character. It's not about dismissing those things. But it's about opening ourselves up to a wider reality that there's a form of community that Jesus envisioned that all of us are part of. And that's what the early church did. They, they formed a new family where they lean into one another and learn from one another. Where the testament, testimony of one another strengthened each other and encouraged one another. This was uh, the new ethic of love that Jesus introduced, saying, If you love one another as I love you, then the world will know you're my disciples. It was a place where the passion of the young and the wisdom of the older generation can connect. And I'm very grateful for the wisdom I've experienced uh, and received from spiritual fathers and mothers. I'm grateful for the encouragement and the camaraderie that I've experienced with spiritual brothers and sisters. And the joy we found that when we connect with one another. But these are the questions we need to ask ourselves. Would you consider inviting others around your table? The older, the younger, the singles, the marrieds. Would you consider it as a family? Maybe inviting someone who's single on your next family vacation. Would you consider starting a small group that is intentionally intergenerational? Where kids and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles, moms and dads, young adults can all come together and experience the family of God together. Here's what's great about this. I don't think we have to add anything to our lives in order to do this. It's simply about sharing the life we already live. It's about inviting people into the experience that we already have. Are we people who are devoted to one another as a family the way God intended us to be? And as we end up by taking communion together, I want you to remember the Holy Spirit was moving. The people were thriving in the first century church. They were all in. And the church was growing. In 82 AD, the Roman Empire built a monument to the glory of Rome. And 300 years later... Rome would be filled with the worship of God. They, they tried to destroy Christianity, yet the empire worshipped what it sought to wipe out. 
How did that happen? A man had predicted his own death and his own resurrection. And he pulled it off. The crucifixion in and of itself would not have been unique because thousands of Jews were crucified on the Roman cross. What made the difference was the empty tomb. Somewhere in the ancient city of Jerusalem, a man walked out of a grave and it changed everything. These people gathered not around a set of ideas, not even around a set of shared moral code. They gathered around the idea that the resurrection had happened and it gave them the ability to receive grace. And that grace motivated the church to be devoted in fellowship together. At this time, let us pray for communion. God, thank you so much for what you did uh, on the cross. Thank you so much for not just calling us to hold down the floor, maintain a status quo, but thank you for allowing us to be ecclesia together, to be a movement together, to be one complete family living in grace. We thank you that you didn't just come on earth and leave it and call it done, but you are still moving, you are still present. I pray we would be people uh, that move with you, that we are people that gripped with your teaching and and devoted to your teaching and committed to one another as a family. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.